Men are numbskulls. I'll just say that on the front side. Um, I say that jokingly, but the reality is men are responsible for the tone and tenor in the home, um, the spiritual leadership. And as it turns out, uh, as we start biblical counseling, a lot of the time the men are just, tell me what to do. Just tell me what to do and I'll do it, right? I just, I just want to make her happy. I just don't know how. Just, just give me a list, a checklist, and I'll do it. And we always try to tell them it's not a checklist. It's who you are as a person and how you minister to your wife, right? Um, and so we try to have folks focus on their relationship with Christ and growing in their own personal walk and their character and not looking so hard at what the other person is doing. And as they grow in Christ and as their spouse grows in Christ, they'll meet in the middle, right? Sounds easier, uh, easier said than done. But uh, today we're looking at Psalm 15, and, you know, I, I looked at this, uh, I preached through this probably 10 years ago, and, and I'm in a different place now than when I was when I initially preached this message. So, so I had to go through this and, and just restudy it, funnel it through my own heart again, and just ask myself, what is the Lord wanting you to hear today? Um, and, and Lord willing, I've, I've tooled it in such a way that it will bring the text alive for you. It, it seems like a bit of an obscure text, but, but I think it'll minister to your heart today if you'll just give an ear to what I say. There are many questions that people ask in life, right? You know the questions. They're the ones that wake you up at 3 o'clock in the morning. And you can't go back to sleep because they just keep rolling around in your mind. All these questions that you have about life and, uh, and you just you want the answers and the answers aren't readily available. Right. What do I want to get out of life? Oh, I'm worried about my children. What's going to happen to my children? What's the answer to the human condition? Right. I've heard that one. What kind of person should I date or marry? I don't want to be stuck with somebody I'm not supposed to be stuck with, right? What should I do for a living? What should I do for a career? What's my personality type? How am I supposed to fit in with others? Am I going to have enough money to retire? That's a big question nowadays, right? And how do I get my children to obey me? Here's one you probably never thought of. If I eat myself, would I become twice as big or disappear completely? Now, I know you're going to be thinking about that one for the rest of the day, and you probably won't hear another word I say. But Psalm 15, if you'll turn there, um, opens not only with the most pressing question you should ask yourself in this life, but it asks it twice which should startle you as a reader. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this text through, and then we'll try to answer that question uh, that's asked here in the beginning. There's probably no more important question that a person could ask than this right here. And that's why I've entitled this message, The Ultimate Q&A. O Lord, who may abide in your tent? 
who may dwell on your holy hill? And then the 11 part answer comes. He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. In whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He does not put out money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. It's a difficult text. It's, it's a hard one to understand. Uh, in the Gemara, which is a, um, it's a Jewish or a Hebrew commentary on the Talmud, uh, the Jewish scriptures, uh, the Hebrews believed that in writing this psalm, David had taken the 1613 commands that were in the Mosaic law and he had compressed them down to 11. So David writing this took all the laws of the Mosaic law and he, and he scrunched them down into 11. That's what they believed. And then they believed that the prophet Isaiah reduced them to six. So funneling it down even more to six, Isaiah 33, verses 14 to 15, who among us can live with the consuming fire? Who among us can live with continual burning? He who walks righteously and speaks with sincerity, he who rejects unjust gain and shakes his hands so that they hold no bribe, he who stops his ears from hearing about bloodshed, and shuts his eyes from looking upon evil. Going on a little further, they believed that the prophet Micah then took these and, and reduced them down to three. So again, he cut them in half. What are the three essentials to be able to live in the presence of God? And Micah says this in verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 8, What does the Lord require of you but to do justice to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. So we're boiled down to three. And now Habakkuk comes along. And, and in the book of Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 4, they believe that it all boiled down to just one thing. And the one requirement was this. The righteous will live by his faith. Okay, so 613 commands boiled down to one. And the question is, what does a person have to do, or more specifically, and this is where the message is going this morning, what does a person have to be like in order to live and dwell in the presence of a holy God? There is no more important question than that. This is not a question of identity. It's, it's, it's not who is this person, it's what kind of person can do this. Psalm 24.3, if you'll just flip over to the right, very similar. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, and who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood, 
and has not sworn deceitfully, he shall receive a blessing from the Lord and a righteousness from the God of his salvation. Who can abide in the presence of a holy God? That's a huge question uh, this morning and the one before us, and it's probably the most pressing question of your life. So stop and listen. The psalmist wanted you to listen. That's why he repeated it twice. What I've done is I've taken the 11-part answer here in Psalm 15, and I've compressed it into four areas of life. So each one of the verses has three stanzas, and you can you can basically categorize them into four areas. And the and what I've what I want us to see here is four areas of life that must reflect faith in God. Four areas of your life that must reflect faith in God so that we might evaluate our standing before Him. If you want to dwell in the presence of a holy God, this is time for self-evaluation. The first area of life that must reflect faith is Your walk. You see that in verse 2. He who walks with integrity, works righteousness, speaks truth in his heart. Now, this sounds a lot like Psalm 1, right? The righteous, how blessed is the man who does not stand in the path of sinners, sit in the seat of scoffers, walk in the way of the wicked, right? It's, it's the same kind of idea here. He who walks with integrity, works righteousness, speaks truth in his heart. And verse 2, you'll notice in contrast to verse 3, it describes this person as on the basis of what he does, whereas in verse 3, it describes him on the basis of what he does not do. So here you want to know, what types of things this person engages in, here it is. And even though the word he is used, it's a generic he, which means uh, it's applicable to all who desire to dwell in God's presence, both men and women. It's not just for men. So I will be saying he a lot of the time, but it's applicable to both men and women. But these three words, walks, works, speaks, describe the person more than the activity. It it literally reads this way. They're participles, and it's the one walking with integrity, the one working righteousness, the one speaking truth in his heart. That's who can abide in the presence of God. These statements are are a package deal. They, they, They kind of build up a picture of what this person looks like. He who walks with integrity is, it literally reads, the one walking in cleanness. Cleanness. And in cleanness in Hebrew has the idea of, of uh, pure. He walks with integrity. Right? And, and walking doesn't literally mean walking. It means dwelling. He, he abides. This is how he lives his life. So simply said, he does the right thing. He's a guy, the kind of guy who does the right thing. Proverbs is loaded with examples of this. I won't go through the Proverbs, but but you know that it contrasts the way of the wicked with the way of the righteous, right? 
It's constant throughout the Proverbs. Ephesians 4, uh, Paul picked up this thinking. You know, the first three chapters of Ephesians are all doctrine. The second half of the book is all duty, how you live your life. But he says to walk in unity, right? He tells them to walk in unity, walk in a manner worthy of their calling. He tells them to walk in love, walk in light, walk in wisdom. The whole second half of that book is all about walking. Um, but it's, it's how you're supposed to live your life as a believer. And it says he works righteousness. And the works here is literally he does righteousness. In other words, they're characterized by doing the right thing. It's active obedience to the revealed will of God. And we're not talking about legalism here. We're just saying this person, when faced with a decision, they do the right thing. They do the right thing. You know, our, our good works, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, are, are prepared beforehand for us to walk in. Right? They're not our good works. They're God's works that He has prepared for us. We're just supposed to walk in them. Third, it says He speaks truth in His heart. Now, don't miss that in His heart. Not on His lips. He doesn't speak truth on His lips. He speaks truth in His heart. And why is that important? Well, one would expect that you would say, you know, that somebody speaks the truth. It comes out of their mouth, right? But what did Jesus say about the heart? Right? Out of the heart comes all of these things. The disposition of the heart which leads to speech that is being evaluated here. It's the heart. It's the heart. Don't miss that. A righteous evidence a regenerated heart those who can stand before god have fundamentally had their heart changed a heart that is warped with sin and deception leads to wrong patterns of behavior a heart that speaks truth to itself leads to right behaviors we used to tell people in counseling all the time, you need to do a little less listening to yourself and a little more speaking to yourself. Right? You need to speak truth to yourself. The point of all this is just to say that these three ideas combined, that this person has, has had their affections changed inwardly, which leads to behavioral changes outwardly. So they conduct themselves differently because they know God and they love God. So it's not a checklist. It's not a checklist to keep. It's what kind of person are you? For this kind of person, there's, there's joy in walking in righteousness. It's not a duty. It's not burdensome. It's just how they live their life because they love God. And I'm, I'm spending a little more time here. I'm camping on this because I don't want you to be deceived. If you have never changed since professing Christ as your Savior, then maybe you're missing something. If you still desire 
the same wicked things you did before the cross and it's never changed for you, then I think you need to have another look. Maybe your affections have never really been changed. Maybe you've never wanted to own up to the hard reality that you're maybe holding to a form of godliness yet denying its power. On the other hand, if you've changed your behavior outwardly, but you've never had the affections inwardly change, then you're in the same boat. The affections in tandem with the Spirit of God produce change. But, but for some, there's this feigned sense of morality or hypocrisy. Beloved, if that's where you are this morning, then, then I would tell you you're deceived. You're deceived. The heart, Jeremiah says, is what? Is desperately wicked. Don't trust your emotions. Don't trust your feelings. Have you fundamentally changed the desires of your heart? That's the question. Do you now desire what God desires, or do you still desire the same stuff you did before you professed Christ? Human desires and affections, they're, they're blindly committed to self. They're focused on self apart from the intervention of God. And it's just worth a really long, hard look. And, and ask yourself the question, am I walking the walk because I love God? Or am I just putting on a show? Have I been changed inside? And is that inside now bubbling up to the surface that now I love God and I live my life because I love God? It's a big question and one that you need to, to really ask yourself this morning. So your walk, verse 2, your witness, verse 3. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. You kind of see a, a narrowing here. It's, it's a generic, he does not slander anybody. He doesn't do evil to his neighbor. He doesn't take up a reproach against his friend. You see the circles closing in? It's talking about your witness in these various relationships in life. And these, these three statements, again, the, the Hebrew poetry is beautiful in the way they pile up imagery to talk about totality. This is the totality of a person's public witness and how he relates to people around him and in the community. And it answers the who question, with characteristics that describe the person, it describes him as what he is not. Right? And you see that three times in the verse, right? Not, not, not. 
And poetically speaking, look down at the last verse. It's balanced by that last verse. There's three more knots down there. This first phrase, interestingly, he does not slander with his tongue. The Hebrew word for slander is a phrase related to the words for leg and spy. And you think, what? Well, the imagery is is a person who's a busybody. It implies the person walks around seeking tidbits of gossip to pass on to someone else. They're a spy. Such people behave as spies or conspirators trafficking in information that tears other people down. It literally says, not he slanders upon his tongue. Has anybody ever said to you, have you ever heard this before, that gossip is confessing someone else's sins? Believers do not slander others. Turn over to Ephesians 4. And and in this whole series that the Apostle Paul goes through here, in Ephesians 4, on repentance, down in verse 31 and 32, he says this, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And instead, replace it with what? Being kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Right? Now, this idea of forgiving here is, is being gracious, literally. Being gracious toward one another. Matthew 5.19, why, why is a person defiled on the inside? Well, Jesus says, for, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, and slanders. It bubbles up from the inside and it comes out. So a person is not defiled from the outside in This is a parenting thing for you right now. Parenting tip 101. Your children, it's not the environment that makes them wicked. What is it? It's their heart. It bubbles up from the inside, beloved. It bubbles up from the inside. And and you may find that you could wall off the community around you and protect your children from all that, but what you're going to find is that you've walled the sin in. Our old pastor used to say, the heart of the issue is the issue of the heart. The tongue reflects what's in the heart. And it comes out. It comes out in slander towards others. And the second phrase, he does not evil to his neighbor. A neighbor here is just any human being, right? Jesus told us that in Luke 10. Uh, There's a pun in the text where two of the Hebrew words actually have the same root. He does not do evil to his neighbor. A neighbor and evil sound similar, yet they have very, very different meanings. In context, evil has to be related 
to one's speech. If you look at the text with me, what does it say? He does not slander in, in the first phrase. And then down in the last phrase, the third phrase in verse 3, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. And what's in the middle? He doesn't do evil. It's influenced by the phrases before and after it. The idea of doing evil to a neighbor here is speaking evil about them. And I would just say, uh, just be very, very careful what you say when you're angry. You know, James uh, talks a lot about the tongue. And he, he says to, that people are made in the image of God and therefore we're not to do evil to others, right? James 3, 8 and 9. And that's in the context of talking about the tongue in James. I'm going to keep moving just for the sake of time, but... It also says he does not take up a reproach against his friend. Reproach is reviling. It's a taunt. It's a disgrace. It's a shame. He does not bring shame, not to an enemy, but to a friend. In other words, like one of my favorite OJ's songs, he's not a backstabber. Okay, I'm too old. You guys don't even get my references anymore. You got that one, didn't you? It's one of my favorite OJ's songs. Backstabbers. But what's a backstabber? Right? It's somebody who has come in close in your circle of friends, and when you least expect it, they plunge a dagger in your back, right? They abuse the friendship. They they do evil to you. They take up a reproach against you. They spread false truths. False truths? Falsities about you. So this type of person who can dwell in the presence of God, they have their tongue under control. They're not a liar. They're not a false witness. They don't bring reproaches or gossip against other people. The things that they do and the things that they don't do both speak volumes about this person's character. And we know that character is a product of the heart. There are sins of commission and there are sins of omission. You can sin by not doing what you're supposed to do, or you can sin by doing what you're not supposed to do. Your walk and your witness really ultimately demonstrate what you believe about God. And fundamentally, as I said, whether or not your affections have been changed. So your walk, your witness, third, verse four, your wisdom. In whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear Yahweh. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. A faith determines the wisdom that one applies to life. In other words, he loves what God loves and he hates what God hates. And the first two lines in, in some sense in this verse are, are two sides of the same coin. He despises evildoers, but honors those who fear the Lord. 
These are tough words for us to get our arms around, right? Because aren't we supposed to love everybody? Right? Aren't we supposed to love everybody? This this clearly says he despises the reprobate. Well, we have to understand what a reprobate is. Uh, The term nemas, a reprobate, is a rejected one. He's somebody who's been rejected by God because of his godless behavior. So the, the idea here is Psalm 1, or uh, Romans 1, right? What happened in Romans 1? They worshipped the creation rather than the one that created it. They kept doing it. They kept giving themselves over to evil. And so what did God do? He turned them over to what they wanted. He just, he just let them go. Go get her. That's a scary place to be, by the way. Is there, reprobates do not sin in ignorance. Let, let me put it that way. This is not an ignorant person who just doesn't know the truth. This is somebody who knows God, knows God is there, but denies Him and suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. They're fully committed to sinning despite their knowledge of God. A despised here. A reprobate is despised. It could be translated disdained or, or contemptible or despicable. So those who are committed to God and righteousness reject not just evil, but the ones who practice it. There's a the reason there's Psalm 14. Thomas preached through Psalm 14 a while ago. But Psalm 14 and Psalm 15 are placed right next to each other in this altar here. And the reason why is because it's contrasting the wicked with the righteous. That's why they're placed side by side. Psalm 14 is, is all about the fool who has rejected God. The reprobate. And the point is that this type of person who can reside in God's presence... And I want to emphasize that. It's not what he does, right? It's who he is. This type of person, this kind of person who can dwell or reside in the presence of God, loves what God loves and hates what God hates. He's so in tune with God that he loves what God loves, he hates what God hates. That's the point. I think the best illustration of this is the false teachers in New Testament times uh, Second John says you're not to invite them into your house. You're not to greet them. And if you greet them, you participate in their evil deeds. Pretty strong words, right? Pretty strong words about false teachers leading people astray, condemning people to hell, taking them down the wrong road. The condemnation. In the early church, Irenaeus, uh, one of the early church fathers, he records for us in his book Against Heresies that the Apostle John went to the public baths in Ephesus and he saw a Gnostic teacher, uh, Serenthus, there. And immediately he rushed out of the bathhouse without bathing, shouting, Let us flee lest the bathhouse fall down, for Serenthus, the enemy of truth, is within. (laughs) That was the Apostle John. John's disciple, Polycarp, he kind of had the same approach. He encountered the well-known heretic Martian 
uh, one day and Martian asked Polycarp if he knew who he was. And Polycarp's response was, I do know you. You are the firstborn of Satan. So, strong words, right? Strong words. This is talking about a person's wisdom. We don't have to judge or condemn anybody. The Bible does that for us. But we are to despise evil. Why? Because God despises it. And we are to, to not have regard for evildoers because that's their character. And a person who of faith, a person who is of faith, they exercise wisdom in this way. It doesn't mean we neglect to speak truth or show love or, or share the gospel with these people. Um, but, but it's wisdom. It's a wisdom issue. That's why it's here. It's contrasting righteousness and wickedness. So it looks extreme. It's meant to. That's why the next line says, but who honors those who fear Yahweh. And it's meant as a, just a, a really sharp contrast. They love what God loves. They hate what God hates. And, and I think the bottom line is just that they, they embrace God's standard of character. God's standard of character. Not ours, but God's. And you know, the Proverbs, as I said, they, they paint a picture of guilt by association. There are the righteous who exercise wisdom. And so they're unashamed and they're shouting from the rooftops and they're out in the open, in the light. And then there are the wicked that lurk in the darkness, in the shadows, trying to ensnare people, trying to deceive people, trying to steal their souls. It's a contrast that's meant for us to see because the world is a very wicked place and the righteous don't participate in the wickedness. That kind of person who avoids that kind of wickedness, that's the kind of person who can dwell in the presence of God. And it's, and it's not them. It's, it's that God has fundamentally changed them on the inside. He has given them a new heart. They love what God loves. They hate what God hates. Why? Because they love God. This last phrase, he swears to his own hurt and does not change. And the third line addresses the keeping of one's word, oaths. A righteous person will keep his word despite the pain that it may cost him to do so. So if I give you my word, I'm going to do something. Even if it's going to hurt me, I'm going to keep my word. I'm going to do it. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He will not be deterred from keeping his word no matter the cost. The idea here of swearing is it's making a vow, right? It's, it's, it's a covenant. It's, we might say it's a promise. God takes vows very seriously. Jesus even took this a step further and he said, let your yes be yes and your no, no. Anything beyond this is of evil. Be very careful about entering into vows with people, making promises you can't keep. If you make a promise, keep it, even if it's going to hurt you. 
person of faith exercises wisdom in this way by keeping their word. And I can't help but think this is a reference to God keeping covenant despite faithless Israel. Right? God made a vow and a promise to Abraham that he saw through all the way, right? And he, didn't, he, he swore by himself and he didn't change. If you want to live with God, you have to be like God. See, biblical wisdom is not the attainment of knowledge. It's the application of true knowledge. Wisdom is living your life like a skilled craftsman. Psalm 90, Ecclesiastes 12, verses 13 to 14. Proverbs, look over at Proverbs chapter 2. Psalms, Proverbs. Psalms, Proverbs uh, chapter 2, verses 6 to 15. For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice, and he preserves the way of his godly ones. Then you will discern righteousness and justice and equity and every good course. For wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will guard you. Understanding will watch over you to deliver you from the way of evil, from the man who speaks perverse things, from those who leave the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who delight in doing evil and rejoice in the perversity of evil, whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. See, wisdom enters into the heart, and once it's there, you love what God loves, and what? You hate what God hates. So your walk, your witness, your wisdom, and the fourth area, your wealth. Ooh, that's a touchy one, huh? Hands off the cash. And the point here is that it says he, he does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. How he deals with his money says a lot about a person's character. A lot. In other words, this type of person has a deep sense of integrity that is not determined by his wallet. And as you read this, the word for money is literally silver. And it's moved forward for emphasis. Silver not he gives with interest, and a bribe against the innocent not he takes. That's how it literally reads. And notice there are opposite verbs here used to emphasize that he does not give wrongly, and he does not take wrongly as it relates to wealth. He gives freely and he gains honestly. That would be a good way to summarize this. 
He does not give his money at interest. Interest is the idea of usury. And in Old Testament times, uh, the day, uh, the practice of charging high interest on business loans. According to Israelite law, the, the loaner was not to take advantage of those who were in financial difficulties. The Mosaic law forbid it. And, you know, the poor at times, they needed loans to keep themselves afloat, to keep themselves from having to be sold into slavery. So usury was prohibited because it increased the debt of the poor. The interest rates were were often 50% or higher. Think about your credit card debt, right? 25% is killer. 50%? That's huge. So what's true of a believer? What's the opposite? They're characterized by generosity, right? They're not just concerned with making a profit or making a buck, even at the expense of others. They're generous. They give freely. In the second phrase, a bribe against the innocent, not he takes. In the same respect as usury, bribes were prohibited by the law too. They still are today. Why? Because bribes are much more easily afforded by the, by the rich, right? The rich could come up with a bribe, no problem. What happens to the poor? They can't bribe people. They don't have the money to bribe. So, so who gets off scot-free? The rich, the wealthy, they use their wealth for evil purposes, to take advantage of others. The judicial system in Israel was often compromised, and the poor are the ones that always pay the price. You could read the first chapter of Habakkuk and see that. It's one of the things that really defined Israel in their last days was that the leadership of Israel were just abusing the poor And God just said, this is pure wickedness. And said, usury is the daughter of oppression and the sister of idolatry. God's people are to put God and people before money. And the bottom line of this is not the money. It's what? The heart. It's the heart. Are you looking to make a financial killing at the expense of others, even the innocent and the helpless? Or are you generous? Are you greedy? Or are you giving? You know, idolatry, the God of money, right? It's a little bit crass to say that, but, but it's bowing down and worshiping the God of money. Wealth in this world instead of blessing in the next. God does not care about money. What He cares about is your attitude toward money. And He cares about your attitude toward the innocent and the poor. That's the point here. So do you want to climb the corporate ladder at any cost? 
Do you want to be a property owner, legit, or do you want to be a slumlord? The, the inclinations of your heart reflect your faith in God. In this last phrase, he who does these things will never be shaken. This is where it breaks the pattern. You know, you had three positive, three negative, three positive, three negative, but this last negative relates to the whole thing, not just the last two statements that we looked at. It has a permanent quality to it. He will never be shaken, ever, is the idea. If he, if he does these things, and I would add, from a renewed heart, because of his love for God, he does these things. Why? Not because of works, but because his affections have been changed. He loves God, and because he loves God, it bubbles out into his character. What kind of person can dwell with God? What kind of person can dwell on his holy hill? The kind of person who desires God, they desire his word, they desire obedience, and they despise the evils of this world. I'll ask it again. What kind of person can abide in the presence of God? Ask yourself that question this morning. But ask a second question of yourself this morning. Am I this kind of person? I had to funnel my own heart through this grid, and I've got to tell you, it's a wake-up call. It is a wake-up call. Am I this kind of person? Does my faith show up in my walk, in my witness, in my wisdom, in my wealth? Or am I in love with this world's evils? I would encourage you to ask yourself that question, beloved. There is no more important question you can ask yourself. 